Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting the show on Monday, November 29th, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 84th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show is part three of a series of shows entitled our addictive culture, chemical use and misuse, and the magical host, the human brain and body. Our show tonight is focused on a rather comprehensive overview of marijuana and is entitled Mary Jane, Weeding Out Fact from Fiction from Uncertainty. All this and more. Stay tuned and enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is the premier community radio station of the nation. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos, and my host, Patricia Bucco. And we've been doing a series of shows on alcohol and drug issues. So I'm going to turn it back over to our guest host again. Patricia, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So we're continuing our mini-series, which is titled Our Addictive Culture, Chemical Use and Misuse and the Magical Host, the Human Brain and Body. And before we start our discussion, I want to introduce Pedro, kind of go over his credentials and introduce tonight's show. So this is going to be a brief introduction. You can go back for a more in-depth introduction. This was our first episode that we aired it. It was three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, let me go ahead, ahead and introduce Pedro. So Pedro is a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin and has been a certified alcohol and drug abuse counselor since 1985. Pedro also works as an educator using an honest and motivational approach as a faculty at Austin Community College in which he teaches classes on pharmacology, addiction theory, and personal growth. He was also a counselor and advisor with the Travis County Justice System for 24 years in which he held a state-mandated alcohol and other drug AOD curriculums and advised Travis County judges as to what level of education, counseling, or treatment might be appropriate to meet clients' needs, usually clients with a DWI, as well as safeguard public safety needs. In addition, Pedro is an inventor of an alcohol and other drug assessment process, an author of a cannabis intervention curriculum, and founder of the Pedro Gatos Institute for Addiction, Health, and Social Theory, and of course, a radio show host of Bringing Light into Darkness. What I wanted to highlight today, since this will be the theme of tonight's show, is that Pedro is the author and a trainer of what has proven to be a client-credible science-based 
eight-hour, three-session cannabis intervention curriculum. That began piloting in November of 2012 in Travis County and now has successfully graduated some 5,000 or more clients. So, Pedro, I know we've been focusing mainly on drug categories and alcohol in our past couple of episodes, but tonight's focus is marijuana, and this particular episode is titled Mary Jane, Weeding Out Fact from Fiction from Uncertainty. So I wanted to begin by introducing marijuana as a drug and discussing where you would categorize it, and given the fact that it's legalized medically and or recreationally legalized in 18 states and decriminalized in an additional 13 states. So can you speak to that a little bit as well as tell us about your cannabis intervention curriculum and how your clients have received it? Well, sure. Well, thanks, Pat. Well, first, let me just say that it's now some 36 states in Washington, D.C. that have actually legalized medical marijuana as of June, I think, of 2020 of this past oh, year. Oh, wow. Yeah, it just every year it changes. In fact, as you mentioned, we've been doing this curriculum for some time since 2013. Each year we update it because of these changes. The other 14 states are CBD states, so it's the landscape is rapidly changing from a legal perspective, from a state's perspective. However, it still remains a Schedule One controlled substance offense under federal law. It's actually at the highest level of punitive types of repercussions under federal law. And that doesn't make sense, but that's, yeah. what, that, that's what it is. And so you just can look at the number of states that we just said. You've got 36 states that have legalized medical marijuana, yet under the Controlled Substance Act, in order to be a controlled substance in the level one category, it has to have no accepted medical use, okay? Mm-hmm. And high addictive potential. Clearly, marijuana has medical versatility or else 36 states would not have approved it. So I just wanted to mention that. The other thing I mm-hmm. wanted to mention is you mentioned our title of our show, which is part of what we've done at the Institute in some presentations to LCDC, CEU-type professionals, the title Mary Jane Weeding Out Fact from Fiction from Uncertainty, it's important that some things we know through science with absolute certainty, and those are facts. And certain things that have been said, we know with absolute certainty to be false, and that's fiction. But there's also a large body of information uh, where we're not certain. Mm -hmm. And that's really important because, as you mentioned, our main interest in creating the curriculum was to make it credible. If it's not credible, it's not going to get people to reflect or think or reflect and change any of their previous types of inclinations if they feel it's just a propaganda overloaded anti-marijuana type of curriculum. So we have to be very clear, and we are, when we're not certain. And in fact, as a facilitator, you build, I think, credibility by admitting where you're not as strong as you should be maybe so you don't go venturing off and making claims that are really not potentially truthful or fully truthful and so I've always just found if you're just real honest and say well I'm not sure about that but this is what I think as opposed to saying something with absolute certainty and right you know that really builds the credibility as well the other thing in our introduction you mentioned I worked at the community college for 10 years I did for 10 years, but I have not been working there for some time. I moved away from that and just wanted people to know mm-hmm. that it was a great experience as well, but just didn't want to give the impression that I was presently teaching right. at the community college. Right. Well, we talked a little bit about how you created a program for marijuana interventionists. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what that 
program consisted of. Yeah, well, it's an eight-hour curriculum, and so originally it was broken up into three sessions, two three-hour sessions and one two-hour session, so that you didn't get overloaded too much with information and gave plenty of time for interactions and that type of thing. The program really starts out trying to create as an icebreaker, if you will, just a mm-hmm. little bit about the major species of cannabis, right? So if you were to look at right. marijuana, it comes from a family of plants. The family's called cannabis, really. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and just like we're, we're of the human species, there's certain plants have a bunch of different species, and the cannabis species has two major subspecies, which is cannabis sativa and cannabis indica. Actually, a third one that really is not relative to our interest because it's not even in the Western Hemisphere, that would be cannabis ruderalis. It's in Mm. Eastern Europe and Russian area or whatever. So it's a scrawny little plant that's really not relevant here. But many people that are familiar with marijuana are familiar with the other two, which is cannabis sativa and cannabis indica. And both cannabis indica and sativa have subfamilies that have significant THC levels, and that's usually what we call marijuana, right? Mm -hmm. But it's important. Right. We don't think of CBD. Right. Well, CBD is also in the marijuana plant, but it's just not as prominent as a THC. And when you think about cannabis sativa, it has a second subspecies that's called hemp, and that's really where the very CBD-enriched cannabis is, okay? So there's very, very little hemp THC, usually below 1%, even below 0.03% THC or so. So if someone said, did George Washington get high on hemp? We can say with absolute certainty he did not because nobody can get high on hemp. There's no THC in it. Now, he might have gotten high on marijuana, but it wasn't hemp. And, And it's important because hemp is one of the most versatile industrial entities in the world. I mean, it's um, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It's not just made paper and it made sails for ships. It was like, what I found right. to be most interesting is that it was salt resistant. A lot of things just oh, wow. to- to- totally break down. Yeah, salt resistant. It's water resistant. It, it, it's got these great capacities. Also, it's UV sun resistant. So, those three things are very unlikely found in one product. And there's all sorts of other things. So it was used for nets for fishing. And I mean, you can go on. There's not dozens, but hundreds of different uses. The seeds were used for oils and, and on and on and on. So this hemp is, industrially speaking, probably one of the most productive and cheapest entities of nature that certainly deserves to be exploited greater than it is presently. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, that's start off, kind of talk about that and get people to realize the versatility of it and get them a little bit taken away from their focus on being in a class that they don't really want to be in. Um, right. <laughs> and, and then have a number of different topics that we want to make sure that they're aware of and we go through them throughout the rest and the balance of the curriculum. Right. Well, we also mentioned at the beginning of the show as the legal status of cannabis. So I'm in Illinois. Here, it has been legalized for recreational use as well, but I kind of wanted to, since this show is based in Texas, the legal status of marijuana in Texas, and what are kind of the criminal charges you can get by possessing marijuana or driving while using marijuana? Can you speak to that? Sure. 
Well, first of all, in Texas, as you probably know, we're a pretty backward state, so we are not one of the 36 states that have medical marijuana laws. There has been a current issue of decriminalizing that there was Mm -hmm. some concern that the state was not able to prove up that what somebody was getting busted with was marijuana versus hemp. And so there was a decline in the amounts of prosecutions. I don't know that that makes it legal or not. It certainly does not. But I I do know that there's a misnomer in Texas. A lot of people think that if you're driving while under the influence of pot but not drinking any alcohol, you don't get a DWI, you get a DUI. And that's just not correct. A DUI (laughs) is the language that's used for driving under the influence. it, it, It actually refers to a different statute in the law of minor in possession. Under the minor in possession law in Texas, someone under the age of 21 that gets pulled over and has any detectable amount of alcohol on their person, but does not have a BAC that rises to a level that may get them a DWI, that's called a DUI driving under the mm. influence. If you're over 21, by definition, you cannot get a DUI. You're over 21. However, if you are driving under the influence of marijuana, you can get a DWI in Texas without having any alcohol in your bloodstream. So the definition of intoxication under the statute in Texas for a DWI is an alcohol concentration of 0.08 or more, or not having the normal use of mental or physical faculties because of alcohol or other drugs. So the state would have to show, maybe through video, that you were under the influence of marijuana and did not have your normal mental or physical faculties because of the marijuana. And that would result, if they successfully prove that, as a successful prosecution for for DWI. So for instance, I don't know if you remember Tiger Woods, um, Mm -hmm. but this guy has serious issues to say the least and he had some years ago in florida i think he was on pain medications i'm not sure which ones whether they're oxycodone or vicodin or whatever but he he was driving down the road and the whole side of his car was wiped out and the police pulled him over and he was clearly intoxicated he was slurring and that type of thing but in the state of florida evidently when they took his bac it was below the limit Right. So he did not get Mm. prosecuted for DWI, even though he was absolutely a menace to public safety. And that's why Texas, I agree with their law where you don't have to be under the influence of alcohol to be intoxicated. You can be intoxicated on any drug. But he successfully, whether it was because of this law itself or his own personal financial leverage that he had, a lot of people that have that type of financial leverage can do, can sometimes wiggle out of things. And I don't believe he got a DWI on that case. So anyhow, that's just a little bit about the DWI. Yeah. So, well, okay. I also agree with this law in Texas because there's so many substances that could possibly affect you and Mm -hmm. just completely change your motor functions and everything. But I want to talk about now in particular marijuana and its effects on brain chemistry. So are there changes like we see with alcohol that you can detect even in like an MRI and do different species of marijuana? So sativa or indica have differences in in these brain chemistry changes. Yeah, well, let's start by just for those that have not heard the other shows, if they email us, we can send them a link to the other shows and they can hear it because we did do quite a bit on brain chemistry. But we did not talk about 
brain chemistry and marijuana, as you just brought up. And so the one thing that we talked somewhat about is the idea of these receptor sites, right? In your brain, we have neurochemicals, we have all these different neurochemicals, and talked about some of them are excitatory, some of them are inhibitory, you know, like GABA is inhibitory, and things like norepinephrine is excitatory, and, and on and on and on. And they, they are chemicals that, in order to have an effect, they're called ligands, L-I-G-A-N-D, and they land on a receiving site, a receptor site that we said was kind of like a lock that opens a door, like I was saying the other week, that I have a key mm-hmm. that opens my front door, but it won't open your front door, right? That's the, right. Way, that's the way the brain works. Some chemicals will open specifically a receptor site, but they cannot have any effect on other receptor sites. So there's a whole region, not just in the brain, but throughout the body of cannabinoid receptor sites, okay? And the only reason we have so many cannabinoid receptor sites, why would we have so many cannabinoid receptor sites? We have some in the brain that are called CB1s, and then outside of the central nervous system, outside of the brain are CB2s, okay? Like CB2s are found like in the spleen and and macrophages and other BNT cells and also found in the testes and the heart and the uterus and you know, so you have them outside of the, the central nervous system as well. But the ones that we have in our brain are the ones that are occupied by THC. And those are the ones that will affect the way we feel. Again, going back to our premise number one, nothing changes the way we feel unless something changes in the brain. And what changes right. the brain is the interaction of these cannabinoids in the brain and not all cannabinoids some of them do not have psychoactivity they do not change the way we feel but they can have other types of effects and such but when we talk about the cb1s in our brain not all chemicals like for instance let me take a step back number one why do we have cannabinoid receptor sites in our brain why do we have opiate receptor sites in our brain the only reason is it's because our body creates chemicals that use those receptor sites, right? And those right. chemicals that we create are called endogenous agonists, okay? And agonist is, is just a high-dollar name for a chemical that when it lands on a receptor site, it creates an effect, okay? An mm-hmm. antagonist uh, blocks a site, okay? But an agonist, it, it ingratiates an action. It elicits mm-hmm. a response, with different levels of affinity. Now, what does that mean? Different levels of affinity means, like, for instance, if you are familiar, and I'm sure you are, with K2, K2 mm-hmm. is also a cannabinoid, okay, which means what? Right. It uses the same receptor sites as THC does, okay? So if you were to take K2, it would go to receptor sites in your CB1 receptor sites. And the problem with K2, which is a drug that I would just say straight out should never be used because it has had such horrific outcomes for a subset of people that include catatonic states and worse and, you know, that type of thing. So, but that aside, apparently what's creating the difference between the THC effect and the K2 effect is that the K2, when it binds on that receptor site, it binds more fully and with more power of sorts. Mm -hmm. And, THC, it binds on the receptor site, but not in the same fashion, and therefore does not have these same very damaging potentialities that K2 have. So real quickly, you have 
in pharmacology, then you have plant types of cannabinoids that are called phyto. P-H-Y-T-O mm-hmm. is a prefix. You have your own endogenous types of chemicals. One, one of them is anandamide. And another is a mm-hmm. real long name that two dash glycerol or something like that. Anyhow, so the right. kind of I think the runner's high. You know, when you talk about a runner's high, I think that's what goes on is that these receptor sites get the, these chemicals interacting with them and creates this change. And then you have synthetic cannabinoid. Okay, so you have ex- exotic. So you have your K two. That's right. K2 is a synthetic cannabinoid. And THC, by the way, can be made synthetically, but it is exactly the same chemical as THC. So sometimes people will mistakenly Mm. call K2 synthetic THC. It is not. It's synthetic K2, a bunch of other chemicals closely related. But synthetic THC, there's a product that came on the market some time ago called Marinol that uh, is synthetic THC. So that's kind of the quick and dirty on the cannabinoid receptor sites and such. Mm. And I think the last thing I just want to mention, which I think is really important, is that you have opiate receptor sites, right? So like when you, we were talking the other day about how if you're taking morphine in the hospital and you're a burn patient, the way it actualizes its activity is it gets in the bloodstream, gets delivered to the brain, it goes to the opiate receptor sites, and mm-hmm. it, it interprets or, or blocks the interpretation of pain in some form or fashion. And what's interesting, though, is that there's an abundance of re- these opiate receptor sites in your brainstem areas that are responsible for, like, respiration, right, breathing. Right. That's why you can overdose and die from a, an opiate overdose. That's the mechanism, right? right? Okay, and in fact, they now have nasal and, I think, injectables that are naloxone that can uh, is an opiate blocker. Somehow it gets into the brain and can very quickly dislodge the opiate from the receptor site. But the reason I bring that up is not to get into that depth of, of the opiates, but to share that with marijuana, we have very few receptor sites in that part of the brainstem. I mean, there are some in the brainstem that are responsible for the nausea, and so some of the medicinal values are associated with that. But the the old joke, or the one that I use in the class, is did you hear about the two guys that died from marijuana in Idaho last night? You know, and everybody's, you know, they're jumping up at, you know, and saying, whoa, wait, what do you mean? And I say, well, yeah, yeah, they got, they got hit in the head by a bale of marijuana that fell out of a plane. I mean, because that's really the only way you're going to die from marijuana. You cannot, literally, you cannot overdose in in, in that same way. And it's because of this receptor site location that we're talking about. Right. And to point out, the brainstem is responsible for your breathing mechanism. It's one of the oldest parts of the brain besides Mm -hmm. the cerebellum. So Mm -hmm. it has all those basic functioning features. Exactly. But anyway, so you mentioned how you can't overdose from marijuana, but... There are obviously dangers having, you know, a marijuana dependency. So are there any, or what do you say, are there any dangers associated with, like, regular smoking of marijuana? Or you can also, I mean, like, do edibles and stuff. So can you kind of go over that with us? Yeah, you know, there's a new scientific outcome or focus, if you will, some edibles that now are using nanotechnology. In other words, they're they're submerged in some type of oil base, and they're so small that they can be very rapidly absorbed, okay? So that aside, normally when we talk about edibles, 
or we talk about brownies, you know, or something like that. Generally, when you take a drug orally, it's like when you take your aspirin for the headache Mm -hmm. that you're getting, you don't feel the relief immediately. It takes, what, 15 minutes maybe, 10, 15, sometimes 20 minutes because it has to get through your digestive tract. It has to bypass that whole area before it can reach your small intestine. And then then in your small intestine is where it, it interfaces with the blood supply and then gets transferred throughout the whole body and stuff. So that takes a little bit of time. So getting to the question of there's no doubt that the levels of THC are much higher today than they were in the past. And, and we know that well, the Mississippi Potency Project in particular is a place where a lot of the confiscated marijuana goes each year, but that the feds confiscate. And they actually do analyses of the content of the THC and, and otherwise, right? And so that has gone up rather significantly. In fact, the 2019 data, which is pretty recent uh, from the Mississippi Potency Project, they were talking about in 1995, there was almost 5,000 samples confiscated by the DEA and local police, and the average of the THC back then was 3.75%. By 2018, out of some 723 confiscations, some of the content was as high as 15.42%. So that's a huge yeah. jump. So anyhow, that's the thing. That, but Sorry I, to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, um, go ahead. But So what do you think the increase in potency has to do with? Do you think it might be kind of what we talked about in previous episodes and marketing and things that sell? Is that an issue involved with potency or... What are your theories on that? It's probably a, a market-driven thing. For whatever right. reasons, people think that if the higher the THC, the more people that'll want it. I'm not so sure. But I will say this. But before I do, we need to take a quick break, a pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. And we'll be back after this. Don't touch that dial. 